most tissues in the body, their function is related to the demands placed on them. So exercise is, is the way that I think about this and, and muscle tissue. Imagine that you want to get bigger and or stronger. If you had the perfect sleep routine and the perfect diet and you have no stress and everything else about your lifestyle is really good, but you never lift weights, you never apply a mechanical stimulus to your muscles, those muscles aren't going to get any bigger. And I think in many respects, the brain uh, is the same. So you can probably prevent a lot of decline by removing toxins, by sleeping properly, by getting a, a good diet, by having good cardiovascular health. The, the offset being that when you do like physical activity, you're improving your vascular health and you're stimulating the brain. Dear listeners, this show is brought to you by Freeletics. Building a fitness routine took my life to a new level. Energy, confidence, health, feeling good about my body, staying young and agile. But most of us find it enormously difficult to build such a routine. The motivation is lacking, the workouts feel bad, the plan doesn't adapt, the success doesn't materialize. But it is possible to be healthy, fit, and enjoy your life. Because I certainly did not want to be held hostage to a fitness routine or feel that I am somehow missing out on life just to be fit. For those willing to invest a few minutes of their day to develop a determined lifelong workout routine, Freeletics offers a simple lifestyle, personalized workout plans, and data-driven insights to maximize your likelihood of success while having fun. Start now at freeletics.com. Also, this show is sponsored by Stadium. The scientifically proven benefits of training with weights are indisputable. For the major physiological systems in your body, such as muscle size, strength, athletic performance, functional capacity, also for the increase in bone density and the improvements in cardiovascular, cognitive, and psychological health. Working out with weights is almost a magic bullet. And now you can have all of these benefits at home. Stadium offers you high quality, stylish weight training equipment that you will love to have lying around your place. Get it at stadium.com. Thank you for supporting the show and checking out our sponsors. And now, Let's start with the conversation. Let's double click into this keeping and improving brain health. And, and we, we have already talked about this a lot in, an, in, a, in a native way um, throughout the other questions that we have, um, that we have addressed so far. Um, but before we actually really dive into the specifics, you know, listeners often have questions around um, especially our listeners around exercise and nutrition and so on. But before doing that, um, let's get a proper understanding of the general mechanics of improving brain health. You are working on, I think, what you call compre comprehensive model of brain health. Uh, you, you, 
used lifting weights as an analogy to help me to understand that model. <laughs> uh, could you explain that model? And um, can you establish a hierarchy between the factors that support brain health? To, to a certain extent, yes. And of course, I will say that my opinion is entirely biased by my own worldview. And you will get, if you ask 10 different people who, who think about these things, you'll get 10 different responses. Uh, but I am trying to work with those 10 other people to try and integrate everybody's views into this idea of a model. This is a paper that um, I'm, I'm working on uh, right now with some uh, collaborators at uh, another scientist involved in a charity called Food for the Brain, which is a dementia prevention charity uh, in the UK. And the way that I think about it is that there are essentially three broad categories of things that the brain needs. And then, you know, we've gone back and forth. Is it three categories? Is it five categories? Uh, it, essentially, the, you know, it boils down to some main things. One is that you actually challenge the brain. You ask the brain to do things, right? You stimulate it. And I've talked about that a bunch. So we can just, we'll set that aside for now. But then if, you're, if you want your brain to be able to adapt and function in the face of challenge or, you know, just everyday use, you need two things. You need to uh, supply it with the necessary stuff in order to do that job. And that includes uh, nutrients, oxygen, uh, and fuel. So you can break those down even further. So nutrients is, are you, are you getting the basic building blocks uh, of mitochondria, of neurons? You know, what are the nutrients that you're getting primarily from the diet, although it can also be from supplements? You need supply of oxygen. Um, and more broadly, for all the supply aspects, you need a healthy vascular system. You need your uh, blood vessels to be healthy. Um, and when your brain in a certain area starts to become more active, we see this thing called neurovascular coupling, which basically means that when your neurons fire, your vasculature directs more blood flow to that part of the brain, right? The brain becomes active. It needs more stuff. The, the blood vessels respond. But you need healthy blood vessels for that to happen. So all the things that are important for cardiovascular health, physical activity, um, uh, metab uh, metabolic health, you know, you know, not having high blood pressure, not having high blood sugar, all of those things become critical. Um, and then the, far the, the, the final thing is fuel. So again, that re requires proper, proper blood sugar regulation. Uh, the, the brain can actually function on a wide variety of fuels. So it can use lactate. Uh, generated during exercise. It can use ketones if you're on a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet. Um, so the, the brain is very adaptable, but you basically need that whole metabolic system to be working well. Um, so that's kind of the supply of all the various things that the brain needs to function. Then the other side is these support processes um, that allow for adaptation and remodeling. Um, and those are things, so sleep probably being the most critical one, um, but then the absent, then it's the absence of things that can inhibit that adaptation process. So that could be uh, chronic stresses, um, and then it and it and it could be things like toxins. We also mentioned earlier, common ones being alcohol, smoking, air pollution, things like that. So if you take all of those components and all those components are in place, and you stimulate the brain 
everything else that needs to happen just kind of happens. You build the structures that you need, the, you build the function that you need, you make the connections that you need. Those are essentially the range of, of, build, of building blocks. You then ask about a hierarchy. My personal hierarchy is that most, function, uh, most tissues in the body, their function is related to the demands placed on them. So exercise is, is the way that I think about this and, and muscle tissue. Imagine that you want to get bigger and or stronger. If you had the perfect sleep routine and the perfect diet and you have no stress and everything else about your lifestyle is really good, but you never lift weights, you never apply a mechanical stimulus to your muscles, those muscles aren't going to get any bigger. Um, and at the same time, you could probably get, um, you, you, and you will get a much better response to the gym if you're sleeping and eating well and all that kind of stuff. But the, the primary stimulus is the fact that you go and you lift weights. And I think in many respects, the brain, uh, is the same. So you can, you can probably prevent a lot of decline by removing toxins by sleeping properly by getting a, a good diet by having good cardiovascular health the the offset being that when you do like physical activity you're improving your vascular health and you're stimulating the brain so these things aren't happening in isolation like some things do multiple parts of the same system um just like if you're socially interacting with other people um you are decreasing inflammation because you're removing the stress of social isolation and you're increasing cognitive stimulus because you know it's cognitively stimulating to interact with other people. So lots of things work in multiple parts of the system. Um, but just like, um, just like training in the gym, you need the stimulus to get improvement or increases in function. So you can probably prevent decline with a good diet with good sleep, with uh, all those other things. But if you want to increase function, you have to stimulate the brain. So your hierarchy probably depends on what you're trying to do right now. So imagine that you're like, but you know what? I'm pretty smart and my brain functions really well. And I had a whole bunch of education and my peak brain function was pretty high. And, you know, I'm not really that interested in, in learning skills, but I want to prevent you know, slow my rate of decline, you will probably do just fine, you know, taking care of nutrition and sleep and other exposures and stuff like that. But if, on the other hand, you were like, I really want to make sure that I'm driving as much adaptation and change and growth in the brain, then I would say, well, you, you then need to challenge the brain uh, as well. So the answer is probably going to depend a little bit on the, on the person. And it's also going to depend on your personal risk factors. So it's all very well and good saying, um, yes, I think you should stimulate your brain. But if you're sleeping three hours less every night because you're spending those three hours learning French, um, I'm not sure there's a net benefit there. You should probably just sleep uh, instead and then do less of something else so you have time to learn your French. So, you know, it's always going to be a moving target but, and it's probably going to depend on what's your lowest hanging fruit for what's really important. But then there's also, you would then apply that to this broader model of, of, of how, of what does the brain need and kind of see, you know, where do I fit in? What's the thing that's probably going to be most important for me?
when I think about challenging my brain for stimulus, for, 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 for growth, to push adaptation, how would my, let's call it exercise program, so that, that simile program, how does, what, what, what does that have to have? What components need to be in there? How does it to feel? Is there any sort of guidance that you can give so that I can ensure that, yes, I'm, I am actually simulating my brain? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. And uh, the, the first part of it is probably making sure that this, the, your overall stimulus level doesn't change over time. So there are specific moments in time where the trajectory of brain health or brain function seems to decline more rapidly. And so can we make sure that that doesn't happen? And one is retirement. And when you retire, you remove the cognitive function, the cognitive stimulus that comes from your work. You remove the cognitive stimulus that comes from interacting with your colleagues at work. And that seems to be the moment when uh, cognitive function really starts to decline most rapidly. And people who retire earlier seem to develop dementia sooner than those who retire later, even after you adjust for like medical conditions that might cause you to have to retire earlier. So like some confounders in there. The other thing is that there are some basic stimuli to the brain that you want to remain constant as much as possible. So like your sensory input. And most of these data are observational, but there are some sort of semi-interventional data that support this idea, which is that if, if you say lose your eyesight due to cataracts or you lose your hearing, you have an increased risk of dementia. And the way I think about that is because you've removed an input to the brain. You've removed s some like standard way of stimulating the brain. Um, but if you get cataract surgery or if you get hearing aids, you can reverse that risk. So there seems to be that if you, if you're lose a, if you lose a sense, it, it drives uh, increased risk, but you can overcome that by returning that sense to normal or as normal as possible. So preventing those losses from happening is is an important thing so you so you don't ever want to have like this dramatic drop off in 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 even just basic stimuli to the brain everyday sort of exposure then the other part is what about active challenge and often people will do like a bit of sudoku or a crossword because they think that that's stimulating their brain and i would argue that that's not enough the way that I think about uh, the, the right kind of stimulus is generally how I would think about learning and learning a new skill. So, and, and in general, most classes work in this way. You do it twice a week. And when you're learning something new, the, the best sort of period for repetition is every two to three days. You get so you get less of a benefit of each individual learning session if you have them very close together. And if you have them very far apart, then you spend a lot of your time kind of relearning what you learned last time before you can learn even more. So kind of every two or three days seems to be like the optimal uh, time in between. And that's normal. Right? You, you do like two language classes a week and you go for an hour. And, you know, after some general chit chat and maybe there's a, there's like a break in the middle you probably spend like two 20, 15 to 20 minute chunks of like really pushing the edges of your current skills. And that could be like in the first half of the class, you're learning new bits of grammar. 
you're learning a new vocabulary. And then in the second half of the class, you, you spend a period of time in conversation with the person next to you. And you're both sort of working right at the edges of your current skill set to try and have a conversation in this new language. So these, uh, you know, inf you know, infrequent two or three times a week periods of somewhere between 60 and 90 minutes, but probably broken up into shorter chunks where you're pushing the edge of your current skill set. That's sort of something approaching, um, a, a doable, uh, a way of, of learning and thinking, yes, this is the type of challenge that's really driving, you know, adaptation uh, in my brain. Does that, does that give the right kind of parameters that people can then, can then take? It, it does. Um, so would things like learning a new sport or complex movements, would things like um, embarking on a very different type of career or, you know, area within your career, does that also qualify as this type of stimuli? Although obviously it often is not as structured as what you just described. Yes, I, I would say absolutely. Um, the changing career thing is an interesting question. I don't know if it would be, it'd be nice to see, are there studies where they looked at people who had like multiple careers over a lifetime and was that associated with improved cognitive function long-term? Maybe, maybe somebody's done that study. I, I haven't heard of it, but it, it intuitively makes sense to me. The other part with sports, there are several studies that, that kind of answer that question um, where they take um, individuals and they randomize them to two different ac physical activities that have the same amount of say cardiovascular strain or difficulty, right? So if you look at heart rate, heart rate is elevated the same in both groups. So one group could be this sort of unimodal um, or, or what they call a closed skill um, activity. So it's like sitting on a bike and cycling or jogging, something like that. And you compare it to a group that has this multimodal or some people call it open skill type movement. So it's badminton, table tennis, dancing, something like that. So your heart is working the same in both, but this other one has much more of a coordination component. Maybe there's a social component. There's a reaction component, right? If you're playing badminton, you never know where the shuttlecock is going to be next because somebody else is determining that, right? So you're having to react to the environment. When you then look at, say, responses uh, on brain scans or responses in certain hormones that help support uh, brain function, there's an edge to those more complex um, sports that seem to have a greater benefit for the brain because of their complex nature, even though the, the amount your heart is working it is the same. And then as sort of like a bigger scale than that, there was a at least one meta-analysis that looked at different types of physical activity and found that those that had a coordination component were the most protective in terms of long-term long, long -term brain function. So yes, like cardiovascular fitness and strength are very important. And there are also some uh, studies that suggest that if you take older individuals and you give them a basic weight training program, that improves cognitive function and it improves some of the structure of the brain. But the, there's an edge to these kind of novel, complex movements. So if, you, if you're trying to tick multiple boxes at the same time, rather than going for a jog, I'd go and play badminton or, or play tennis, because then you're getting multiple stimuli at the same, at the, at the same time. 
I mean, if you look at it from a stimuli perspective, uh, even even I as a layman I, uh, immediately see that if I go out for jogging, it's actually almost I'm almost trying to have the least amount of stimuli from jogging. You know, I have headphones in, I'm listening to a podcast, yeah. I'm trying to zone out everything. You know, I don't want to feel the time. I want to, I want that to be over as fast as possible. Um, I try to be in a pace and 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 all these kind of things, which almost make me forget that I run. Versus yeah. if I play soccer or tennis, I, you know, there's the movement, the technique, the ball comes differently. There's the social component aspect to it. You have to read the opponent. You have to read your team so that that makes a ton of sense when you when you likely um if you look at exercise more in i think you mentioned the supply um category um then then you know to prevent um or to ensure that you have a good cardiovascular system and all these kind of things then likely you know these jogging and all of these kind of things are also helpful um is there maybe more a general question in this um, supply category that you had. So um, I think if we leave out the complete no-brainer, so starvation will likely not do your 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 head well and all of these kind of things. But are there any key things that you would like to underline in that supply category, which for most of the people should be do's or don'ts, and most of the people have are deficient or anything like that or or which might not which might not be as straightforward um as you know don't starve yourself <laughs> um in terms of direct interventional things that we have good evidence for there are two nutrients that the people should and there are there are lots of other nutrients that we could talk about as well that i think are important but your omega-3 status and your B vitamin status are probably, they are really critical. And the way to best measure risk from B vitamin status is with something called a homocysteine test, which is should be fairly easy to get from your doctor. Um, doctors don't order it regularly, but they should have access to it. It's not like a fancy or an expensive test. And then some kind of way of, of measuring omega-3 status or just making sure that you're getting enough long chain omega-3 fatty acids so like the, the fatty acids that you get from fish um there are now several uh randomized controlled trials of, in people with different levels of cognitive dysfunction cognitive impairment um or risk of cognitive impairment that show that if you replace just one of those things so you have a high homocysteine um, and you give B vitamins, that does slow the rate of decline of both cognitive function and brain volume. So if you look at like a, the brain on a, on a, on a brain scan, you, it atrophies or it gets smaller over time. That gets slowed if you take B vitamins. But the response is much better if you have adequate omega-3 status. Um, and if you don't, then you don't respond and vice versa. So if you do, if you have a randomized controlled trial where they give you uh, omega-3 fatty acids, say so they give you a fish oil pill, if you have a very high homocysteine level because you don't have a good B vitamin status, then you won't respond. Um, and this is often why you'll now see um, several studies that say fish oil doesn't help with brain function. And that's because they they haven't taken this this these factors into account. But when they have taken them into account, there's this very clear interaction between the two. So those are two important things. I would either take a small dose of fish oil every day or 
eat fish once or twice a week, that's probably going to be just fine. Um, and then either measure a homocysteine level or just ensure that your diet has plenty of um, B12, uh, folate, which is B9, riboflavin, which is B2, and, and B6. Um, and in general, you can get those things well, either from a supplement or uh, sort of green vegetables and then um, meat and, and eggs and liver and things like that. Are there some things that people often do which are really detrimental to brain health? I mean, so for example, from a just overall health perspective, especially from a cardiovascular perspective, processed foods and all of these kind of things, it's nothing new that these are very detrimental. Are there, um, from that perspective, is there anything like that on um, uh, for, in, in terms of brain health? And also when it comes to exercise is there really better or worse exercise now just from this supply perspective not mm. the stimuli perspective or is it yeah. just whatever helps you generally be healthy from an exercise perspective will likely also you know just help you with your brain health yeah i think in 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 general the the same rules kind of apply across most chronic diseases and i think the brain is the same so yes there are studies that show that having a high proportion of your diets come from ultra-processed ultra foods, that's associated with a higher risk of cognitive decline. Um, so in general, uh, a higher, higher quality, minimally processed, nutrient-dense diet um, that's varied is probably going to be best for the brain, but that's probably what you'd recommend for most people anyway. So it, 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 nothing is really specific about the brain there, except for maybe, you know, make make sure that your nutrient status for some of those key brain nutrients uh, is adequate. Um, one thing that I think is changing over time, but one of the most important things that people <laughs> don't do well for their brain is sleep enough. Um, and, and I think that is that is changing, but that that's a, a critically important factor. Um, and then from the cardiovascular supply side, uh, like you said, I think... And in general, with exercise, the benefit is this product of intensity and time. Um, so if you do lower intensity work, you just need to do a bit more of it. And if you do higher intensity work, you just need to do a little bit less of it. Um, and there was a nice meta-analysis that, that came out a couple of years ago that looked at what's the minimum effective dose of exercise to meaningfully change cognitive function and they estimated as about 700 met minutes per week um and so every day that's like 60 minutes of walking or maybe it's 45 minutes of brisk walking 20 minutes of resistance training five minutes of sprinting like any combination of those things is going to be is going to be good and it's actually pretty close to just general government guidelines on how much physical activity you should get so you can i think you, you can get a bit you can get more benefit up to about double that volume but that's the the sort of the minimum effective dose to have a, a meaningful measurable effect on, on brain health and it's about what pe what the government would recommend you should you should normally get so it's not a huge amount um it's very doable and you can you can probably split it across lots of different types of activities depending on the intensity and the time that you have to do it. Okay, got it. So generally speaking, as with METs, um, higher intensity, less time required, lower intensity, yes. more time required. Um, yeah. 
if not, you, you can also just say no, but is there a connection between physical performance and brain health? So where better brain health in some instances improves your physical performance? Just from a layman perspective, I could imagine that also, you know, vice versa, that not only um, um, exercises or playing sports that need a lot of coordination give you stimuli and that help with your with 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 keeping your brain healthy but also the other way around the better my brain works the better i might be at these coordination things does this also for example apply to there's also a certain coordination aspect when you for example weight lift coordinating your body the different muscle fibers to fire and these kind of things so certainly there's, there's, there's a bit of that. And, and some of it is, is probably more theoretical um, than, you know, we have a really good study that shows this. But on that last point, there was a randomized controlled trial of individuals in their 70s called the SMART trial, where they had one arm of the trial do uh, resistance training, which was three times a week, six exercises, three sets of eight. Uh, and it was all on machines. So something like super simple, anybody could do in any gym. Uh, and this is again in their 70s. And that was associated with improved structure in the brain and it improved some aspects of, of cognitive function. So just that process of neuromuscular stimulus, you know, working the muscles in a, in a coordinated way, uh, that was enough of a stimulus uh, to improve brain structure and function. And then there are some other studies that suggest um, when you know, you have you have greater particularly if you particularly if you've trained it you uh you you have better capacity to make decisions under under fatigue which is kind of what you're talking about from a performance standpoint so when you're really tired you know are you can you make the right decisions can you process information while also um you know very cardiovascularly stressed and there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff going on and that's probably a, a trainable aspect um and there are some some studies where you, where you do things like during during your say you're sitting on a bike maybe you're a triathlete you know during your time on um on the like static bike at home you know you can do like these these sort of like response inhibition go no go tasks where you like click buttons in response to sounds in your ears and and things like that and that kind of additional stimulus while you're doing your cardiovascular work probably then it improves your ability to to make decisions under under fatigue or to process information under fatigue but it's a, it's a trained response right that, that's something that you've you've trained yourself to do um but in in the less structured environment you're probably still doing some of that as well you know if you're playing soccer rather than uh, going for a run you're constantly you know even though you're getting a similar car cardiovascular benefit you're you're having to process information um at, at the same time so you're probably training that but but now we're kind of it makes sense that that would be the case, but I don't have a bunch of studies to kind of say that this is definitely happening. Yeah, but the, okay. So if I understood that correctly, that's still mostly where um, stimulus, so exercise stimulus improves brain health and not where um, better brain health helps me to be better at exercising or um, improving my performance in certain sports, correct? Yeah, so that reverse one, I would assume to be I would assume to be true, but no, I don't. I, I don't know of any good studies that that would look at that, and it would be quite it would be quite difficult to to test that. Um, for likely the last bigger topic of um the 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 episode, I would love to um double click into the topic of children, so raising um ch children, 
um, how how important are the first years in developing a healthy brain in a sense of how much can we um, can we support that and how much can we fuck it up? So, um, so how big is our how big is our uh, impact uh, on, on on children? And if there is a sizable impact, what what can you do to support that um, that that optimal brain de development? And what should you avoid? So the impact you can have is massive um, in both in both directions, and. I will say that if you're somebody who's listening to this podcast and thinking about these things, then you're probably not creating an environment that has a negative impact. And you're probably already creating an environment that has a positive impact. Um, when we talk about the potential for negative impact, um, there are a whole bunch of things that affect later cognitive function, mental health, dementia risk, and, and several of them can be tied back to adverse childhoods. But we're talking trauma, abuse, you know, significant uh, socioeconomic disadvantage or deprivation. And those have huge effects on the brain. Um, but a lot of that is, is probably happening outside of maybe the group of individuals who listen to this podcast, unfortunately, and, and we need broader societal change that, to, to really prevent that fr from happening. That, and, and I think that's where a huge amount of benefit can, can happen, but it's probably going to need outside inputs uh, for that to happen. Your question is probably more related to, as an individual parent, how much can I support and nourish the developing brain? And then there is also a big sort of broader component, uh, but there is possibility of significant uh, positive impact. And some of the best studies that I know are in the area of neonatal brain injury. So you, so you have uh, a baby that something happened either around childbirth or some, or the baby was born prematurely. And we know that the more prematurely you're born, the greater the risk of um, lots of um, cognitive impairments or neurodevelopmental impairments later in life. Um, and there are uh, some studies that show that if you're a baby who has some kind of brain injury, but you go home to a very advantaged home, so this is measured by things like how much education your mother received. And what comes with that is finances, resources, all this kind of stuff, right? That it then predicts your later education and what you will get as an infant. But you, if you have a brain injury, and in this one, one study I'm thinking of, and you go back to that kind of home, that brain injury has no effect on your later cognitive function. You do just as well as a baby in that same environment um, without a brain injury. So what that tells me is that even the at-risk brain in the right environment, you can have a significant positive impact. Um, and that's going to come down to a number of things related to everything that we've talked about. But, um, you know, love and support, a broad range of challenges and stimuli, uh, a nourishing diet, the absence of trauma or significant chronic stresses. Um, those are the things that are going to be really important. and. These are all things that you inherently know already. Like I'm not giving you any new information, but um, in terms of actionable items, just making sure that your kids get exposure to a broad range of skills and that could be musical, sport, those kinds of things, like sampling a, a broad range of challenges. I think that's critically important. Um, making sure that as they get older, 
they get a good amount of physical activity, they get to spend time outside, they're socializing with others, you know, you're you're eating um, something approximating a, a, a nutritious, minimally processed diet, of course, sometimes that's difficult with kids. And I, I, I appreciate that. Um, making sure that you know, they, they get adequate sleep when possible. Um, these are like really big levers that are probably not that difficult for a lot of people um, to achieve. So in general, as long as all of those, all of those are provided, you can have massive positive, uh, positive impact. Um, beyond that, I, I don't think that being hyper-focused or hyper-specialized, you know, the kind of, there's been the evolution of the helicopter parent in the last few decades where we've been really worried about kids being exposed to stressful experiences or things that are like emotionally or physically challenging. Um, I think that we need those exposures in order to, you know, develop and adapt. So I think you can go too far in terms of making your kid, you know, sit down and, and spend all their time practicing piano rather than going outside because you're worried that they're going to like fall out of a tree and break an arm or something like that. I think all of those experiences are important. So a, a little part of it is to allow the kid to explore and understand their limitations themselves. Um, and appreciating that sometimes safety and other things come into play. But I think there's a very interesting phenomena that's that's uh, been exposed recently where we just haven't let kids be challenged in the same way as they perhaps used to be. And that is both physically, intellectually, things like that, uh, because we're so worried about their safety. Um, this is the the idea of safetyism. Um, and some of that is, I think, is, is holding, holding, potentially holding people back. So, so letting, letting there be some chaos in the system is probably important as well. Yeah, there, there, there is also this contra controversy about um, competition um, amongst children. The topic of you know growth mindset versus making children you know feel well or, or feel feel good. Um, not, not, not not um providing them the stimuli of 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 loss or disappointment you know quite a lot of these topics um a, a very layman question but um when it comes to brain health as i mean the brain is still developing in children as all the other systems and and, and things like that are also still developing in children um is my assumption correct that in these early years supporting brain health and also likewise the other way you, you know inhibit um like somehow re reducing brain health has a bigger impact um over the whole life um versus if you would do the same things that either support or are detrimental to brain health later on during life or is it can't you think about this in this simplified way again i think there's two two ways to approach that depending on who you are and where you are so you're right that the based on some of the research around um say socioeconomic uh status or education level early in life other exposures early in life be they positive or negative i think that <clears throat> your sort of ultimate cognitive capacity is probably 
most driven by early early exposures um where you know the most meaningful benefit will come early in life because that sort of sets the peak of the curve that that then sets the trajectory for the rest of your life however thinking about it like that is inherently very fixed then you're like you're already in fixed mindset mode because you could look back and say well do you know what i had a sucky childhood and i didn't get the opportunity to have much education so i'm you know i'm never going to have the the cognitive capacity that i could have done otherwise and that is absolutely not uh, a uh, a thought process that i want to initiate so i think theoretically you can change the ultimate trajectory and and have a bigger impact early on but we also know from several studies that no matter when you start you can change your final trajectory and and you know that could be starting to lift weights in your 70s then already you're changing that trajectory of of uh you know brain function regardless of what happened to you early on so in a theoretical model yes what happens early on probably in terms of what is done and the impact is probably much bigger than what happens late on but no matter where you are on your life journey you can still significantly change the trajectory from that point onwards do, do you think that with the rise of ai and technology uh, we're evolving towards a world where brain health might become I mean, secondary is maybe a wrong word, but you get the concept as we lean more on machines or um, in a world where because of advances in medicine, uh, a certain light can vastly improve brain health and function and creating a two-class world with that regard. Do you know what? It, it, it's possible. Um, I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen uh, to most jobs and careers and the current types of way that our brains interact with the world as AI uh, increases in penetration uh, uh, across our lives. Um, but I do think that we ultimately will still have a huge amount of control in that, in that process. Um, and, and I think that there are going to be a, you know, probably the, the vast majority of, of future jobs are going to rely on creativity and the type of thinking that ai models aren't very good at because they're only predicting based on the past whereas they can't link to or at least currently can't link to unrelated fields in a way that makes sense to us but that's what but the human brain is is very good at that um and even if you end up in a career where actually you're not stimulating your brain that much because you're just like running an algorithm all day um, there are still going to be uh, untold possibilities for you to interact with other humans, to learn new skills, um, to to have new stimuli, be they you know more modern, uh, such as video games, or you know just like complex complex movement and skill development. Um, so no matter what happens, I, I I don't think we're at risk as long as we as as long as we really understand how the brain works and what it needs any of us can still do the, the necessary things to, to keep our brains in tip-top shape. There are people who are doing almost the opposite to um, that, that, that tech aspect where um, they, they're using drugs or practicing stream rituals to induce altered states of brain changes. Um, for example, sustained creativity through LSD microdosing 
uh, and things like that. W what's your your thoughts uh, on those practices? Um, I think they're very interesting. Um, in the right setting, psychedelic macro dosing certainly has a lot of promise. Um, in terms of particularly resetting, um negative or unhelpful thought processes so you know as part of you know a therapeutic process you know, be that related to a uh, uh, terminal diagnosis or you know other mental health conditions and i think there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening there um i think some of the best evidence for like microdosing is that most of the effect is placebo effect um and there have been some studies that have have shown that um, there is also some animal studies that suggest that microdosing of certain psychedelics has a negative effect on synaptic plasticity, whereas macrodosing has a positive effect. So, um, in general, I don't think there's much benefit to psychedelic microdosing, but in the right setting with, with, with the right kind of person and like say therapists involved macrodosing uh, of certain psychedelics ha ha holds a lot of promise. Um, so that's the very short answer to a, a, a complicated field right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also holding back because of time. I would have so many thoughts on that. But um, it, it's, it's a thing that I heard quite a lot of times. I have zero experience with it. Also because of the legal um, system in Germany, we're not very much at the forefront of of um, exploring this field, but it's definitely a field to um, keep, yeah, um, keep in mind uh, to to, yeah. to follow. Um, maybe as as the last or or second last question is: Is there anything that you're excited, looking forward to working on um, within the next years? Um, a particular development, a, a study, um, some area of research that you really want to drive forward. Yeah, one is that I'd like to fully crystallize and then test my model for how 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 the brain works. And that requires two steps. One is that we sort of see how all those pieces fit together and build what looks like a model in statistics or in theory or in, in the computer, and then take data from, say, large population data sets, and there are several, and then put them into the model and say, using how I think about how all these things interact, you know, say, if cognitive stimulus is the primary driver, and then you have supply and support, if we organize things in that way, does that better predict, say, cognitive decline or dementia risk than our current models? Um, and I'm excited about that, because either I'll find out that I'm right, or I'll find out that I'm wrong, and I need to figure out uh, a different a different thought process. And if, if, it, if the latter happens, I'll come back and tell you that I was wrong previously, and what I think is now uh, the case, um, but that that's going to take several years, and it's going to be a collaboration with scientists all across the world. But I, I'm I'm very excited about that. Um, and then in the next couple of years, I also hope to so away from the science and into like the practical applicability. I hope to write uh, like a popular science book about all the things that that we've that we've talked about, so that people can take this stuff and really like actionably make make changes. Um, but that's uh, that's going to be at least a couple of years away. So those are the things that I'm I'm currently really excited about.
I, I love how you're gen genuinely excited about the, the scientific working where you want to test your hypothesis and whether you're right or wrong. It's an awesome, yeah, <laughs> maybe the one is slightly better than the other, but you're not, not married to your idea. And if you write that book, please, um, please, you know, come back to the show. We're happy uh, to talk about that. Um, would be awesome to get your, you know, 30 seconds opinion on these three quick questions. Right. Uh, number one, what does happiness mean for you in life? Um, oh, it, it really just boils down to uh, like being able to being able to wake up every day and do the things that that, that you want to do. And which is just so a huge amount of there's a huge amount of of freedom and like values kind of kind of baked into that but that's that that's really where where happiness lies i think and, and you know to have some kind of overarching mission or, or purpose and, and feel like you're connected to others and and you're you're kind of driving a group of people forward in, in some way uh all those things are kind of baked baked into it if you could live your life again what would you wish you would have fully understood at the age of 20 <laughs> That um, girls don't like you more if you have a six pack, um, and if they do, then they're not the kind of girls that you want to spend time with. Like that, that really, that thought, that's something that I really needed to know when I was twenty years old because I spent a decade chasing the wrong goals. Um, but I learned a lot in that process, and that's part of why I'm here today. So I can't be mad about it. But that's 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 I'd, I'd tell my younger self that, or I'd try and make him understand that. That th that is such an awesome answer. <laughs> and uh, lastly, which decision would you take differently, assuming there would be a surgical way um, to go in and change a decision, not a butterfly effect that completely derails your life? Um. There's no major life decision that I that I could think of off the top of my head that I would that I would have done differently. There are a few, I don't know, more than five, less than fewer than ten times when I could look back and I could think I should have treated that person better. Um, that would be the and whether it would make any difference in the long term might, you know, probably wouldn't. Um, because they're not, they weren't that significant. But there are still times when I think back, I'm like, I really wish I'd have treated that person better. So that those, that's why I would. That's pro some small things like that I would probably change. Beautiful answer, Tommy. It speaks so much to your personality. Where should listeners go to learn more about yourself, your work, or anywhere where you would like to point them to? So, um, the place where I'm most active is usually on Instagram uh, at Dr. Dr. Tommy Wood. Um, and then I do have a website as well, uh, drtommywood.com, where I'll I post uh, podcasts and like if you happen to want to look at all the papers I've published and things like that, that that kind of stuffs on there. And I and I do, um, I do have a podcast of my own, specifically focused on the brain, called Better Brain Fitness, which I co-host with my friend and colleague, who's a neurologist, Dr. Josh Turknet. Um, that links on my website. It's also linked to through my Instagram, but it's it's a purely question and answer type show. So if you have if anything I said today didn't make sense or you have any follow up questions, please go to the podcast, ask us that question. You can either record it as a voice note or you can type it in. 
and then we can answer that question and hopefully other people will find the answer helpful as well. We're going to put that in the show notes. Um, Tommy, I have to say thank you so much for uh, being on the show. I have enjoyed it immensely and um, all the best going forward. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. This is really great. And I, I really, really enjoyed our conversation as well. Thank you for listening to the show. I would love to get your comments, suggestions, and feedback. Also, if there's a special topic you would like me to address or someone specific you'd love to see on the show. If you want to support me, please hit the subscribe button and leave me a rating. I hope you will listen in again on the next show. Until then, all the best.